Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Interim Dean of the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to highlight the work my colleagues and our alumni in the fields of policy, planning, and health are doing to make the world, the country, and New Jersey a better place. Today, we welcome back Gene Herb to the podcast as we speak to representatives of our research centers. Gene was featured on an episode, I think, about 18 months ago now. It's amazing how long we've been doing this. Um, And she is the head of the Environmental Analysis and Communications Group here at the Blaustein School. Welcome back, Gene. Thanks so much for having me. Well, and congratulations on the interim deanship. Congratulations, condolences, who knows what the appropriate (laughs) sentiment is, but thank you. Um, Let's get started by having you remind us, since it has been 18 months, about the mission of the Environmental Analysis and Communications Group and your role. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, so the Environmental Analysis and Communications Group, which has the unfortunate um, acronym of EEC, which I, is how I will refer That's to That's how a lot of people respond to climate change. Yeah. So. Um, so, so it's important for me to give a shout out to, um, to Mike Greenberg, who uh, began this um, uh, research group um, long before I even arrived at the Blaustein School, about 11 years ago. And initially the work grew out of Mike's leadership in creating the National Center for Brownfields Redevelopment. Um, at the time, Mike's work really focused on looking at Brownfields redevelopment as an opportunity to build vibrant and healthy communities. And uh, since then, we've been able to build on that vision, uh, Mike's vision, uh, with um, our uh, leadership from Clint Andrews to move um, EEC more towards the direction of community, certainly continuing community-based environmental planning um, connected to um, health and equity, but also uh, growing also into other areas in terms of looking at sort of the the, uh, intersection of environment and people, uh, and that includes the natural environment as well as the built environment, and that allows us to also stretch out then into related issues um, such as access to um, built and natural environmental conditions that provide equity and justice opportunities. It also allows us to look at issues associated with health um, and the broader environment. Um, And and it also allows us to um, look at opportunities to form partnerships with uh, other folks from across the university, as well as you know, leaders here in New Jersey to better understand the the role that kind of the broader environment plays in, in public policy. That's great. And uh, I love the sort of connecting between uh, the environmental questions and the other ones like social justice and health um, that you mentioned. And you guys are working on a lot of fascinating projects. 
Let's start um, with an Amy bet that I could not pronounce this correctly. So <laughs> let me try the Megalopolitan nice. Coastal Transformation Hub. Right. Um, I'm not going to say it again. Can you just tell me what that is? Yeah. So so the Megalopolitan Coastal Transformation Hub, which we refer to as MOC, right? Because we really like our acronyms. <laughs> and um, you don't want to say that word again. That's right. You don't want to say yeah. that too much. Is Is led by Professor Bob Cobb. Um, here at Rutgers University. Um, it is funded by the National Science Foundation. It is a very large research endeavor. It's a five-year research endeavor in the New York City, New Jersey, Philadelphia region um, with 10 other institutions besides Rutgers participating. The work associated with MOC is focused on um, examining different types of decisions and how decisions are made and what are the factors that inform decisions with regard to coastal climate change. Um, and that can be decisions uh, by federal, state, local agencies, that could be decisions by communities as well as individual homeowners in terms of making their own personal decisions. Part of what Mock is focused on is um, recognizing that we have many uncertainties as we plan for long-term climate futures, right? So if we're thinking 50 years from now, if we're thinking tw even 2050, when I turn 90, um, there's so many things that, that are uncertain, including uh, climate futures, because the science is always evolving, including changing landforms, such as coastal erosions, including even our value structure, right? Who, who would have thought that I'd be working in my home most of the time now, a couple of years ago? So, so what Mock is really focused on is, is looking at how decisions get made, what informs decisions, um, and then also looking at how can we better understand those processes to create climate adaptation decisions now, you know, now in the next five years or so, that can be um, enhanced or modified as need be as we start to understand how some long-term uncertainties are um, are being made clearer. One of the things that's, um, I think, really innovative about Mock is that it, it is a research enterprise. It is funded by the National Science Foundation. But the, the team associated with Mock and, and Professor Kopp in particular, who's, who's the PI, has such a strong commitment to engagement of decision makers, stakeholders, residents, uh, with a, a special focus on populations that are typically underrepresented in climate planning, so that the, the research agenda and the decisions really reflect um, the term of art in, for the National Science Foundation is co-production of knowledge, right? But the concept that this is not a top-down researchers tell communities what you know, what they need to be thinking or what's important, but that we need to be doing a lot of listening. So, so the way that we've sort of operationalized that is that rather than having the research teams from these 11 institutions out um, in the field doing their research, we're spending a lot of time right now talking to uh, key informants throughout the New York City, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia region, 
uh, including community leaders, including state federal agencies, non-government, um, non-governmental organizations, a really wide um, array of decision makers and thought leaders to better understand how to frame our questions and, and to identify what some of the priorities are. Later in the spring, we'll be doing some deeper dives in terms of engaging thought leaders and community leaders in 10 locations in the region. And then by the time we get to the later part of the spring, like mid-May, um, the mock leadership will select a set of locations, which might be neighborhoods or municipalities in that region, that'll become the focus area for mock work over the coming four to five years. And what does that engagement look like? Is it individual interviews with community leaders? Is it focus groups? Is it broad community meetings? Um, how are you sort of getting that input? All, all of all of the above, and you can see the bags under my eyes right now. Um, so, so we are launching probably next week um, some online surveys with membership organizations that represent members that that work professionally at the local level, and that includes um, membership organizations that represent public health officers, um, municipal finance um, professionals. Um, floodplain managers, community planners like Blasting School alum, uh, and then also nonprofit organizations that lead disaster uh, recovery um, in, in the region. So that's an online survey. And then right now we are deep into conducting one-on-one -on -one key informant interviews, all virtual, um, with about 75 people in, in the region. Um, our next step, which is in March, is when we will identify a set of 10-ish, 10-ish um, locations. And again, those might be neighborhoods, those might be municipalities, they might be multiple neighborhoods, multiple municipalities. And in those places, we'll be doing more one-on-one -on -one conversations with local stakeholders, so community leaders, mayors, uh, professional planners, um, you know, faith leaders uh, in, in those locations. After that, <laughs> when we choose when we choose the pilot communities where Mock will reside um, over the next several years, we'll be spending a lot of time also engaging through focus groups and one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I'm hoping, um, you know, at kitchen coffee tables, uh, you know, uh, kitchen tables to talk about. Um, with residents about some of the pressure points and decision problems that they're facing. So I've, uh, this fascinates me and we could probably talk a lot more about it, but I do want to get to other things I've written on the sort of uh, nexus between doing good policy analysis and public participation. Um, but uh, because I do think that uh, there is analysis is better if it's informed by the public and public participation is better if they know what analysts have to say. And so I easily send you stuff on that if you'd like. Well, thanks. And Sud, I'll also mention that um, we have a, a, a stakeholder advisory panel that is a, a very strong group of about two dozen people who have really informed our thinking um, on, on these issues, so much so that we've actually produced, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll post it, I'll give it to Amy to post with the podcast if you want, what we refer to as our principles of engagement. So this is how we're going to engage. And it, it provides all of us a benchmark to be able to kind of 
be accountable to in terms of how we're going to engage. Um, and I think they're super practical. Um, I think they have a strong, um, they, they demonstrate us operationalizing our commitment to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion by saying, this is how we're going to engage. For example, you know, we're, we're not going to be extractive. We're going to make sure that we provide compensation for, for people who are advising us on some of ours. This is one example, but there's lots of other examples. And then one other thing, one of the super practical thing that's come out of this conversation, including with um, leaders on our advisory panel who um, lead, for example, environmental justice work, is that I think what we're going to do is we're going to organize um, kind of a mini workshop um, with some of our stakeholder advisory panel members to really reflect on how do we now um, walk the walk to our talk? How do we take those principles engagement and that commitment and actually operationalize it in a very large research um, enterprise? And that'll be, I suspect, a public convening. And I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah, that's great stuff. Um, like I said, I think we could delve into even more detail, but let's at least get one other project covered here um, of the many you're doing. How did you become uh, involved in a project on state capacity for public health? Right. So that's the funny thing about our little group um, is that um, when you really think hard about it, you can see the interconnections of some of our projects. So the one that you mentioned is one that we just finished in December, where we were looking at um, the um, the how much capacity in terms of funding and support, particularly local public health has in, in New Jersey. And um, the connection to our, our e-commission is that um, local public health officers nationally talk about the concept of public health 3.0, which is where public health becomes the chief strategists in communities, right? So when we think about health, when the Blaustein School thinks about health, we think about health as being um, driven by the environment, by transportation, by housing, by economic opportunities. And, and what public health 3.0 is about is looking at how do we empower local public health agencies to really lead uh, those discussions and those that kind of decision making at a community level. And so the connection here for us was appreciating um, the very limited capacity um, for public health, local public health here in New Jersey compared to other states. So we did some comparisons to other states. We talked to other states to see how they've been tackling this issue. We conducted um, an Eagleton um, survey of New Jerseyans to understand what do they know about local public health in New Jersey. And then we've also talked to lots and lots and lots of public health professionals here in New Jersey and reviewed 30 years worth of studies and commission reports looking at public health in New Jersey. And for me, what was a little bit eye-opening, quite frankly, was was really coming to understand that overwhelmingly local public health in New Jersey is funded by local property taxes, right, which no one wants to increase, uh-huh. and by earmarked dollars, state and federal earmarked dollars, right? So, so here's money to work on vaccines, or here's money to work on lead, or here's money to work on education about um, sexually transmitted diseases. The only source of funding that was unlimited, like that was unrestricted, um, that gave local public health some 
flexibility to better understand what are the needs in a community was zeroed out in 2011. And, um, and so as a result, what we see is that um, public health funding, local public health funding in the state is um, under capacity and very restricted to these kinds of earmarks. So as a result, well, for example, in my world, um, local public health leaders want to be engaged. They want to be on the forefront of work on climate change and health equity. They just don't have the capacity to do it. And so it was a little bit of a roundabout way in terms of an environmental analysis and communications group. But when you really think about it, there's, there's a very deep connection. Well, let me give you another connection and ask you about it, because, you know, obviously the past two years have revealed gaping challenges for our public health system um, in terms of how we've responded to the pandemic. And part of that is not the fault of funding. It's not the fault of um, the public health agencies themselves, but rather the way we react to what they tell us. Um, And I suspect that we have the same problem with climate change. Um, And I'm wondering if as you sort of worked on this one project, you found yourself thinking, oh, yeah, this applies to some of the work on climate change as well. Yeah. And and in fact, I'm in the fifth year of teaching a graduate course um, at the Boston School on communicating science with decision makers. And um, and I've learned so much in teaching the class. Um, what's important is that the class is about communicating science and technical issues with decision makers per se, right? So it's not just broad communication and it's not just, you know, learning how to use nouns and verbs. Um, it's better understanding that many of the drivers with regard to decision making, whether it's climate change or public health, or should I get a vaccine? Or should I feed my kids GMO foods? Um, are issues that are associated with our value structure, um, and and also issues that are associated with other pressure points in our lives. Right? I mean, can I afford to do something? Can can I afford to wait to act on climate change? Or you know, am I a renter? And I you know I don't get to control these decisions. Um, so it, it's it's a it's an interesting class in that we spend time definitely on nuts and bolts about writing and presenting, but also in terms of starting to understand what are the drivers for decision makers, regardless of whether those decision makers are Governor Murphy um, or a funder or um, a local homeowner um, and trying to understand the context in which we're communicating. So some of the examples that we use in class these days are not just environment and climate change, but we talk a lot about COVID. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right, before we go, let me let you highlight one other thing, whatever you choose that your center's working on. Okay, so um, I am so proud to be um, providing support to the State Division of Disability Services, which um, has launched a very bold program that's referred to the Inclusive Healthy Communities Program. So it's a grant program that the that the Division of Disability Services issues to um, local governments, local and regional governments, nonprofit groups. And it's all about advancing policy and systems change focused on inclusion, true inclusion of people with disabilities to advance health equity. And so we had our first round of funding um, about a year ago. We're currently in the second RFP process. And um, 
we will soon, by early next week, um, on on the EEC website, we'll be posting a little uh, short video um, talking about some of the experiences in the first round. And when I saw the draft of it, I really kind of got a little bit teary because some of the things that we've heard from the first round of grantees is that the program has been transformative um, in that whether they're doing work on community gardens or they're doing work on transportation access or providing people with greater access to nature, they are now looking at their jobs through a disability lens. And um, and they're looking at it as a social justice issue. So I am I'm so proud to be working with um, Tris Sanchez and Karen Alexander from the Voice Transportation Center as part of our team to be able to help facilitate this program for DDS. It is it's phenomenal. And for anyone who's interested, the current RFP is posted on the EEC website as well. That's that's great stuff. Jean, thank you again for coming thank on. You. Um, also, of course, as always, a big thank you to Amy Cobb. Thank and you, Karen Amy Cobb. Um, we will uh, see you next week with another talk from another of our uh, research centers at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.